Today on I'll Have You Know. It's not about me at all. I never want it to be about me, but I do believe that a lot of the principles, the experiences, and the entire ethos of what Chopping Block is about is a reflection on what it's taken for me to get to where I am today. Opiamosu's idea for Chop and Block actually came after he graduated from Rice Business, but his passion for West African food and culture has always been there. He carved out a spot in Houston's culinary scene, but with the overall experience being such a big part of his venture, COVID has definitely had an impact. He talks about how it's impacted him as an entrepreneur what he means when he talks about the words alignment when it comes to work-family balance, and what's next for his business in 2021. Welcome to I'll Have You Know, Opie. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's uh, it's great to be here on the, on the show and great to chat with you. We were talking a little bit about your name and you were telling me that everyone pretty much knows you as, as Opie, but Akbe is really the, the way to actually say your name. Do a lot of people have troubles with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody knows me as Opie, and I often, you know, refer to myself as Opie as well. But the proper way to actually pronounce the short form of my name is Okwe. Well, let's talk about Chop and Block, um, a company you founded. And um, you talk about um, it being the cultural crossroads where local communities and West African culinary traditions intersect. Can you elaborate on that and tell us more about what it means to you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a personification of the diaspora to a certain extent. You know, when I think of Chopping Block, to me, it's 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 a bigger than just food. It's it's more about a cultural narrative and a cultural platform. And, you know, I look at my own life experiences being of West African descent, um, specifically Nigerian. But growing up in Houston, Houston also having such a large uh, West African community, actually the largest in the country, and seeing that the lives that I've been around and, and, and myself, you know, it's one where it would be incomplete to only tell one side of the story. And what I mean by that is for me to only share the West African part of my story where the Houston part is also really big, right? And I think we're at a point in time where we're starting to see that permeate more in society, where a lot of West African, even pop culture is really synonymous with American pop culture. And so Chopping Block is really that crossroads where all the different aspects of culture, be it food, be it language, be it music, intersects to create some sort of experience for all to enjoy. And you first came up with this concept while while you are at Rice Business. You know, we know Houston is talked about a lot for its culinary offerings, but did you find that there was um, somewhat of a void in, in the West African choices here in Houston? So I would say, you know, the, the idea actually came to me um, you know, in different times throughout life. But I wouldn't even say when I was at Rice, I really dwelled upon it much. Um, the revelation really came after I had graduated from Rice and spent some time even further away from Houston. Growing up in Houston, as I mentioned, it, having such a large West African community, um, you know, a lot of the aspects of the culture um, were still accessible to me because I knew where to go and find them. But however, as I left Houston, um, actually, upon graduating Rice, I moved to Philadelphia, lived in the Northeast for a bit and traveled and did different rotations around the world. Um, I didn't necessarily have that same knowledge of where those pockets were in the different towns or cities uh, that I was I was spending time in. And so, you know, that distance, I would say, 
along with just the natural affinity that I have for my culture and the yearning for things that, um, you know, I at some times may have even taken for granted, um, you know, is really kind of what spoke to me and really let me understand the void that, you know, I thought was a bigger problem in society than, than, uh, than I had realized before. Who is your customer? I think my customer is anyone who wants uh, a fresh, honest, friendly, flavorful experience. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I think there's so many different ways to uh, to enjoy the offering that we put that we provide. Um, you know, we have folks who, and I'm going to speak specifically to to the food aspect. Um, we have folks who who just really want to try something that they haven't necessarily had the experience uh, eating before. Um, so it's a diverse you know, diverse customer base from that standpoint. You can call them foodies. Um, you can call them, uh, you know, gastronomists, you know, folks who want that experience. Um, but then you also have a large contingent who um, also are people of West African descent who have grown up, you know, embracing this food, embracing the culture and um, seeing it uh, kind of being positioned in a way that's familiar yet slightly different than where they have experienced it before. Uh, is intriguing. And so we just make sure that we follow through so that they can fully uh, enjoy the way that we are packaging the overall experience. There are people out there sometimes who are scared to try something new. So if I was someone who really hadn't had many culinary experiences, my palate isn't maybe very mature or advanced, how would you describe West African offerings to them and sort of entice them to give it a try? Yeah, I think a lot of it really comes from um, the education and the storytelling. I find that you know, regardless of your background, folks cannot deny a good storyline. They cannot deny good food as well as they can't deny good good music, right? Those three things are always undefeated. So, you know, despite um, your familiarity or your uh, assumption of your familiarity with the foods, um, you know, our job is to educate you on what it is that the foods are comprised of. And as we do so, oftentimes we find out that there's a lot of parallels in the dishes that we're that we're presenting. That are that are somewhat similar or even completely familiar to you that you didn't necessarily realize before. Um, so we cook with a lot of rices. Chopping block is is a heavy on the rice concept, um, and that's because West Africans uh, uh, tend to eat a lot of rice, and it's prepared in different ways. So um, we have uh, different dishes that we uh, like to position first uh, for those who really just kind of want to taste the experience. Um, one is our jollof jambalaya, um, which is synonymous with um it, so jellof rice is a smoky tomato based rice dish and it's probably the most traditional or most um popular west african dish that's out there uh it's popular because every pretty much every west african country has their rendition of it and there's a uh i guess a, a fun banter across the countries on whose rendition is the best um, but then you can also bring that all the way back down to Houston, to the South. And, um, you know, it's often said that jollof rice is the precursor to Southern jambalaya. So, you know, either, you know, jollof rice or, you know, jambalaya, either of those is going to kind of strike your interest. And now you have something to refer it back to. Um, but as you taste it, you also taste not only the familiarity, you also start to taste other flavors that you might not have, uh, necessarily, um, you know, had before and, and, and things that you've, you've you've eaten in the past. So um, yeah, it's a lot about education and it's a lot about um, you know really understanding where your customers coming from. Now my mouth is watering. <laughs> <laughs> so you started with chop and block, and now you have chopped and stewed. Can you talk a little bit of, 
about the difference and um, where you've sort of gone with the business from its inception? So Chop and Block is really a food and beverage concept that is used to just kind of be a platform to, to really showcase culture widespread. Um, and so, you know, really it's, you know, if you want to say what's your most tangible product, it's obviously food. It's obviously the dishes that we provide. That's kind of how we get the ears of, of our consumers. But now, you know, before we said we want to go ahead and launch Chop and Block and create a restaurant, because the initial vision is for Chop and Block to be a fast, casual concept that can be replicated. Um, we want to be able to replicate and be in different markets around the country, um, ambitiously around the world. You know, we said, well, that's the pie in the sky vision. How do we test that? And so, uh, you know, testing it to validate our assumptions, but then testing it to ultimately really get the uh, the opinions of the consumer was really important to us. And so we said, well, what's a clever way to do it is to run some sort of dining series. And being that we're from Houston, um, being that I'm a big fan of Houston and just the, I love uh, Afro beats and hip hop music and the hip hop scene in Houston is known as the chopped and screwed scene. So being that it's from Houston, we said, let's put a play on it and call it chopped and stewed. And let's go ahead and start running a dinner series or a pop-up series where we can test the concept. So Chop and Block is the big vision. Chopped and Stewed was just really our pop-up series to really test out the concept and learn before we took that next step in really building out the concept further. So where was uh, Chopped and Stewed in the process when COVID hit and how has that impacted all, all of your business? Yeah, so I think Chopped and Stewed is obviously what people started to engage with at first. Um, you know, they heard about Chopping Block and they wanted an opportunity to dine with us. So they would come to one of our Chopped and Stewed dining experiences. And, um, you know, fortunately, as we started to do those in 2018, it really picked up over the years. So fast forward to 2020. Um, funny enough, we were actually getting ready to host our largest uh, dining event, another one of our restaurant takeovers where we would partner with an existing restaurant in the Houston area, use their facilities to turn it into Chopping Block for a night. We were in the middle of a big pop-up, or, or, or I guess we were selling tickets for a big pop-up. We were pretty much sold out. COVID hit, and we had to cancel that. Um, but at the same time, behind the scenes, we were also in discussions on securing uh, actual space for, for our brick-and-mortar uh, concept to, to, to launch at the end of 2020. You know, just with, obviously, the world that we live in now, um, you know, we, we paused those discussions and we didn't necessarily want to also like fade the black. We wanted to continue to engage with our audience. And so, you know, one of the ways that we figured would be a good opportunity to engage with our following was to meet them where they were. And that's at home. So uh, that basically kind of forced our hand into another aspect that we had uh, thought about as a growth avenue for us somewhere in the future um, was to actually work on packaging our, our products and distributing them nationally. So uh, yeah, COVID really kind of helped us to, 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 to speed that aspect of our concept up to where you know now we feel really good about our ability to uh, take some of the, the fan favorites and um, share them with consumers across the country through uh, our, uh, our distribution channels that we're, that we're building up. And um, you know, I think you know, as we look at the near future, I think that's gonna be the name of the game. So uh, that series we call Rice at Home. Um, Rice at Home is a, it's a saying in West African culture um, that uh, it's compulsory or mandatory that there always is rice at home. 
And I guess rice at home has a double meaning for you, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm rice through and through. So, you know, I wear I wear inside and outside. Absolutely. <laughs> so right now, if someone would like to explore your, your product offerings, what would be the best way to go about that? Yeah. So on our website, um, which is uh, chop and block, that's spelled C-H-O-P-N-B-L-O-K dot co, uh, chop and block dot co. Um, there's an opportunity to sign up to attend one of our dining experiences. That's actually the list of people that we're prioritizing as we are finalizing our in-home dining experience. Um, so I would highly recommend for those who are interested to sign up on that list. And then they will, we don't, we don't email blast or anything like that. We really only make meaningful engagements. Um, but that's ultimately the list of folks who are going to have the first opportunity to, uh, to, to, to get some of our products at home. So during this time uh, when you've been, you know, working from home as an entrepreneur, I know um, you're married, your wife, Janelle, and then uh, you also have a, a very young daughter. What has that been like uh, just trying to manage work, personal, uh, your wife, I know, just took a new corporate job. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, really, it's 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 just going all in, <laughs> you know, is, is the best way to describe it, right? You know, every single one of those aspects is is super important to me, um, to our family. And so, you know, a big part of, uh, of it is balance, but, you know, I, I, I subscribe to the thought that balance isn't necessarily carving out this equal amounts of time for everything. Balance is about having alignment. And so that's a big thing within our household is having that alignment on how we can prioritize things, how we can tackle things as a unit, um, and, and how we can be on the same page as we realize, you know, what's important now and what's going to take the backseat at any given moment. So it's been a lot, but, you know, entrepreneurship is a lot and it's always going to be a lot. I don't think there's mm -hmm. ever going to be a time, you know, regardless of what's going on in this world where it's just going to be smooth sailing. I think if you're continuously trying to improve, trying to grow, trying to um, push things to get closer to your aspirations and your aspirations also continue to move, it's the journey. So as hard as it is, as time consuming as it is, as as few hours of sleep as we get, um, you know, we continue to be motivated to, to push on. I want to go back to your roots, which you've talked some about. Uh, your parents uh, immigrated here, um, the Nigerian roots. Uh, you grew up here and um, you went off to play football in Minnesota on both an academic and uh, athletic scholarship. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's in Missouri. I grew up in the Houston area, uh, played a lot of sports, focused on academics and ultimately um, got a scholarship to Truman State University in Northeast Missouri to play football, but also had a full academic scholarship to go along with that. So that's where I met my wife. She's actually from the St. Louis area. So we both met in Missouri. But yeah, you know, being from the Houston area, you know, one of the largest metropolitan uh, uh, areas in the country, and then moving to rural Missouri, <laughs> um, population like 30,000 people, um, I remember going on my recruiting visit and I asked the coaches, does it snow? And they told me it didn't. I thought they were being serious. Apparently they were joking. So, um, <laughs> I had some harsh winters, uh, started to realize that man, football isn't as fun in, in the snow as it once was, uh, back in Houston. But, um, you know, obviously it, it forced me to grow up quite a bit, just being that far away from home. And, uh, one of the things I did realize upon graduating was that I wanted to get home as quickly as possible. So, I was able to get an opportunity with a company 
um, that was looking for um, sales reps to help reinvigorate their Houston branch. And uh, they happened to be searching for folks in Missouri because their headquarters is in Missouri. So it was a ticket to come home. And uh, that's what got me back to the Houston area. Uh, ended up working there for a few years. It was a small business, which allowed me to wear a lot of hats and uh, also gave me some experiences that were uh, able to allow me to, to, to put in a good application at Rice. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how everything got connected from there. Was business school always on your radar, even when you went away to Missouri to play football? Or was that something that sort of evolved over time? Uh, it was on my parents' radar, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I will say, you know, for me, probably my junior year in college and undergrad was when I started thinking about business school. Um, but at that point, I really didn't realize that business school was somewhat different than a lot of other graduate programs where there's value in having some real life experience in that field. So work experience versus just kind of going directly from undergrad. I, I was fairly young in my class. I had about three years of uh, full-time corporate experience before getting my MBA. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of that was, you know, intentional and in, in some of the decisions I made and in, in, in where I went to go work for, um, you know, that was all factored in on how could I get the the experiences that would be able to still help me to, to get to business school quickly. What are some of your best takeaways from the Rice Business Program? Oh, man, I think there's a lot. I saw a lot of value in our in, in my cohort being surrounded by so many different people with so many different walks of life um, that brought different uh, experiences into the classroom really kind of helped me to, to sharpen the way that I thought about um, not only business, but just life in general. But then also, to be honest, it made me think, you know, even a bit more highly about what the future could be or what I could go after just by seeing how talented my peers were and the things that they were looking to tackle in this world. So uh, it gave me a bigger vision, I would say. You know, I'm a pretty ambitious person, but I think that gave me some affirmation and a bigger vision on on what um, impact, you know, I wanted to have in this world. I also think, you know, definitely Rice gave me a lot of tangible skills to go make that happen. So, you know, we're talking about entrepreneurship and and I, along with concentrating on entrepreneurship, I concentrate on energy. So there's two things that I wanted to get out of business school uh, was one, the opportunity to go work in an energy company um, because, you know, given my my uh, my background, um, I realized that the world is big and um, the geopolitical nature of the energy industry was one thing that was interesting to me. But also, given that I'm not also not a uh, engineer by by background, I figured this is probably the only way I'm going to get in to, to test out the energy world. Um, but then entrepreneurship uh, was huge. Um, I remember I was actually in Al Danto's first class that he taught uh, as a professor at Rice. And it was his new enterprise class. And that class blew me away. Uh, just really seeing, doing case studies and, and hearing about people just going after things and, uh, you know, learning the good, the bad and the ugly from those experiences. And again, it just made things seem much more tangible to me. So, you know, I think Rice was a great uh, two years of self-reflection, you know, honing in on ambition, building the skill sets to be able to successfully go after, you know, whatever it is I wanted to go and try professionally and, um, you know, position me well for, you know, upon graduation, being able to, to excel in, in, in both my corporate career, but then also to, 
really uh, figure out what I want to do from an entrepreneurship standpoint. You mentioned the Action Learning Project. What What is that exactly? And what did you get out of that? So the Action Learning Project, that's kind of like the capstone project that uh, we had to complete the first year of the program, the second semester. And it's really a hands-on structured program to where you're paired with a few of your classmates. You work for a specific project that uh, is tied to one of the businesses that uh, supports the rice program. So I actually worked uh, in the energy space with Cameron at the time. And uh, basically, I think the best way to describe it is they bring you on as consultants to tackle some sort of business problem um, that is, is actually meaningful to that company. One of the things that was really well done, well thought together was how the teams were constructed. So, you know, I mentioned that I had a lot of different experiences, um, but I also mentioned I was one of the one of the youngest, um, you know, in my class at the time. So being paired with other classmates who had true consulting experience or those who have CPAs, those who've worked in um, other countries, there was a lot for me to pull on. And, um, you know, it was, it was really, I would say my and, and many folks first opportunity of applying the uh, classroom aspects of, of the program to something that's actually tangible and seeing how everything kind of comes into play, what you really know and what you really don't know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, starts to shine. So that was what the action learning project was for me, uh, a big reason as to why I was able to, you know, succeed in my internship that I took with GE um, and ultimately converting that into a full-time opportunity with them upon graduation. When you were at Rice, were you working on the chop and block business plan at that point? I was not. Um, you know, that's one of the things that Al Danta, who was the professor of the entrepreneurship uh, class, New Enterprise, and he's, I guess, one of the pillars of entrepreneurship at Rice now. You know, when he was teaching that class, he made a statement that really stuck with me, right? So I was in the entrepreneurship program. I knew one day I wanted to build something. Um, I didn't know exactly what that was. And he made the comment. He said, well, a lot of you guys are going to come out of here. And you're going to go take a job. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't feel that you have to come out of here starting your next business. But, you know, if there is a need that you identify, because everything starts with with an idea, you know, at least you'll be equipped to, to know how to approach it. And you'll always have the resources to be able to pull back into within the rice community to be able to, to have that support to do so. And so that, um, you know, that really took the pressure off of me in terms of, hey, you know, I have years of experience in, in, in one field. I'm trying to pivot, possibly check out the energy industry, but I know one day I want to be an entrepreneur. I didn't necessarily have the vision for chopping block then, but uh, I did know that one day I did want to work on something that was meaningful to me. And uh, when I think about chopping block, you know, as I kind of peel the layers back and, and, and take a step away from it and just kind of reflect, chopping block, I, I say this all the time, it's not about me at all. I never want it to be about me. But I do believe that a lot of the principles, the experiences, and just the entire ethos of what Chopping Block is about um, is a reflection on what it's taken for me to get to where I am today. And as far as as your vision, do you think that, you know, you talk about as you were at Rice Business, not necessarily ready to start a company, but at the point in which you were, do you think all those experiences that that you know played out in your life up to that point led you to the vision you have for it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the good ideas come from really just a need, right? And so with myself growing up in a West African household in Houston, I had just like a lot of, you know, first generation immigrants, that whole duality complex, right? So we had a set of norms and principles and customs that were appropriate at home. But then as I stepped out of my door, I also had to realize how to assimilate to the norms and principles and customs that were acceptable in the broader society that I lived in, right? So, you know, things that we would do at home wouldn't be the same things that might be, it'd be looked at as different or, or in school, for example, right? Um, and so, you know, you navigate life like that. And again, that really is the illustration of the crossroads, right? Someone living in that crossroads. But the difference was when I would come home from school, I had all the access to everything that the West African culture, you know, would provide it to me. And that was something that, you know, made me as proud of the culture as, as I am now. And so as I moved out and further and further from home, you know, those four years I spent in Missouri, and I came back home. Then after grad school, I spent time living in uh, in in the Northeast in Philadelphia. From there, I moved to the Middle East and and so on, right? And living in Dubai, and then did projects in other parts of the world. I continued to come back to the self realization of like, man, why can't I like get a bowl of jollof rice as easily as I can get a hamburger right now? What I really need <laughs> in my life right now is jollof rice, or you know, the music seeing how like West African culture, like Afrobeats music, for example, um, is continuing to be on the upswing. Um, you know, how come, you know, I have to kind of really at that point kind of go out of my way to find those songs that I would easily find that plus just understanding from an economic standpoint, you know, the migration pattern of West Africans into this country, knowing that there was a big influx in the early eighties, really had me thinking, well, you know what, just like myself, all the kids I used to run around with, you know, when I was younger, they're probably dealing with the same thing too, as well as, you know, our parents and uncles and aunts that paved the way for us. They're still also trying to figure out how to get access to certain things too. All of those things made me as proud of the culture as I am. And I'm like, well, the folks who I work with who don't really understand or know or haven't had as much access to this and don't know what they're missing out on, they'd probably love it if they found out about it too. And so, you know, a lot of that is really what started to drive me to say, well, then why doesn't this exist? Seeing other cultures that uh, I felt were good parallels, um, meaning, you know, cultures who also um, might have, you know, smaller immigrant communities, but they're able to tell their story, their narrative. Uh, through food made me think, well, if we could do this with West African culture, food is something that would open a lot of people's ears uh, to what it is that we have to say or give us the opportunity to to share the narrative in a way where it makes sense to us, not one where someone is dictating what our narrative truly is. And so that's really what paved the way for Chopping Block was that realization. And one day I was driving uh, on a work trip and I saw a sign for an Italian street kitchen. And I said, you know what? That's it. That's what we're going to create. We're going to create the first West African-inspired food and beverage concept where we can share the beauty of the culture through food because food is going to be a way for us to gain the attention of the masses. And that's how Chopping Block really came to be, really just out of the need 
and really out of a realization that I'm probably not the only one that's dealing with this void. Um, so how do we go ahead and close it? Is there um, some feedback that particularly stands out in your mind from from a customer that really touched you or really made you realize what what you had created? Yeah, I, I think I think it comes from different customers at different walks of life, right? So when you know you asked me that question earlier, who who's our customer? You know, I took I take a lot of pride in when someone of West African descent comes to maybe one of our dining events or has an opportunity to 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 fellowship with us um, and they eat the food and they hear about the stories that we're sharing to kind of educate everyone in that space about our culture and what we're doing and why we're doing it and what the significance of what you're eating means and how it came to be. And they sit back and they look at it from a, a perspective of pride. Um, you know, that really that really fires me up, you know, because I think a lot of times you hear about, you know, maybe if it's cultures or aspects being quote unquote commercialized and it means it then gets watered down. And I don't necessarily want that to be the case because that's not how I reflect upon my culture. It's not one that's watered down. So, um, you know, getting feedback of, oh my gosh, wow, like this actually tastes just like my mother used to make it or this don't I can't tell my mother, but this tastes better than how she used to make it. <laughs> um, you know that's that's exciting. But what really what really gets me is so in our dining experiences, it's this is all you know pre COVID. It's open seating. You sit wherever you want, and you're probably sitting with to your left of you is probably the person you came with, and to the right of you, and to and across from you are people that you are meeting for the first time. And so oftentimes, just because we've been fortunate to have a diverse group of customers what you would see is, you know, we would share the story as food is coming out. But then as I'm doing table touches, walking around the dining space, I'm seeing the stories continuing to be told by the West African eater who's sitting at the same table as other people who aren't of that background. And that's really what made me, makes me excited. But I think you know, that's one aspect of it. But then the customer base who isn't necessarily coming to our dining experiences, thinking that they're familiar with what it is that they're about to be uh, experiencing. I love seeing their faces light up from curiosity, uh, interest, and then satisfaction uh, when they do start to make those connections of, wow, so this is how jambalaya came to be. And this tastes delicious. <laughs> People will support it. They'll stand behind it. And ultimately, the whole goal is to be able to share, is to share the narrative and get them to embrace the culture. And that's what we're seeing take place. Where's Chopping Block in 10 years? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, hopefully it surpasses my vision. But, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I tend to have as ambitious as I am, I tend to have a real structured way of thinking through things. And um, I try not to uh, overshoot uh, my aspirations for, for, for where this can be in 10 years. So, um, you know, I think in 10 years, Chopping Block is going to be more accessible. Chopping Block is going to be a gateway for folks to uh, share West African dialogue and have it be commonplace in society. Um, just as, you know, Japanese culture is probably very commonplace to folks who've never been there before. But because they've eaten Japanese cuisine or had an omakase or somewhat, you know, it's it's something that they're they don't think twice about. Right. Um, I want West African culture to be like that. And I think Chopping Block is going to be a gateway for many to be able to see the world through that perspective. 
So I think in 10 years specifically, I think we're going to have products um, and retail outlets uh, for people to be able to easily grab and take with them. Uh, so I have a vision of us being in grocery stores, being you know places that are close to you. Um, I also see within 10 years, um, we'll have multiple locations in multiple cities uh, around the country. Um, you know, I see our spaces as spaces where you can have uh, uh, music um, take place. You can also have great food. Um, you can also walk away with great uh, tangible goods like books and things such as that of that sort to to learn more about about the uh, the culture. Um, so and and also to celebrate uh, folks of of that of that background. Um, so yeah, I think in ten years we'll have products in, in in retail outlets. I think we'll have our own brick and mortar spaces. And I think we'll also be uh, further shaping aspects of pop culture and uh, media overall. If you could give some advice to someone at Rice Business, you know, right now has entrepreneurial aspirations, what would your best advice be? I would say shoot your shot and shoot it wisely. So you never make any of the shots that you don't take. So go after it, but also think it through. One of the first people that I told about this idea back in 2017, where it first came to mind, was Al Danto. So, you know, I graduated in 2014. I took Al's class in 2013, and he got a phone call from me in 2017 when I had the idea. And I said, hey, Al, you know, can we go to lunch? I want to run something by you. And um, his piece of advice to me was, hey, this is, first of all, yeah, you can, you can, you can do it. He said, you know, yeah, even though you don't have, like, restaurant experience, which um, at that time I told him, I said, hey, well, I'm actually going to go get a job at Chipotle and uh, work at nights at Chipotle to learn like really what it takes to, to, to make this vision happen. So you got to be willing to roll up your sleeves and like, you know, humble yourself and get things done because um, it's only going to serve you in the future. So that's part of doing it wisely. Get some experience. But, you know, when I told him, I said, uh, you know, I want to do this. He said, well, you know, restaurants. Yeah, everyone says it's a risky business and it's hard to it's hard to make them work. But. It's always, it's really, if you want to boil it down, it's about maximizing your chicken, right? You got to understand how much your chicken costs. You got to understand how how you can sell, how much you can sell your chicken for. You got to realize how much waste you can avoid and how to make the most out of that chicken. And if you can figure those things out, it's just like any other business, right? Your outputs have to exceed your inputs, basically. And I said, okay, well, you put it in that context, like, yeah, it's doable. He said, but yes, yeah, as doable as it is, like, don't quit your job, though. Do it with your job until you're at a position where you feel that you can break away from, uh, you know, your other career and you've given this the opportunity to, to really become successful. And, um, you know, that's, that's really what, what the whole, again, the chopped and stewed dining series was about was not quitting our jobs, learning as much as we can from the market, learning more about our concept ourselves um, by testing things out and not necessarily also having as much pressure from not having a job to, to, to be able to give us the time to really think this thing through and continue to be intentional about the way that we, we build it. So, you know, someone is looking for some advice. I think it's definitely go after it. Um, but at the same time, as you're going after it, uh, you know, really take the time to understand what is going to be required to make it successful, know your business in and out before you really break away and, and pursue it full time. Is there anything else that you would like to add that I haven't asked you about? Um, yeah, I think the name. That's one thing I can never, uh, I never talk about enough. So a lot of people, they see the name Chopping Block and they're like, okay, okay, yeah, I get it, right? Chopping Block, food, you cook food. 
uh, you cook food on or you cut food on a chopping block, things like that, right? It's synonymous with the kitchen. It's a kitchen tool. And so I think the name, I love the name because I think the name really speaks to the story of being that cultural crossroads. So the one language that's spoken pretty much across all the countries in West Africa, despite there being hundreds of different tribes, is a broken English called Pidgin English. So it's spoken in all the English-speaking countries in West Africa. And uh, it's kind of like in, in the Caribbean, they speak Patois. So um, in that dialect, Pidgin English, the word chop means to eat. So now if you tell a West African, I want chop, or that you hear the word chop, they already think about eating or food. So chopping block is the block or location that you go to to eat. So if you are of West African background, you get that immediately. If you're not of West African background, you get chopping block being synonymous with food immediately as well. And that's really what we want to be in this space is, again, that crossroads where despite your background, um, you know, you you see what we're doing, you immediately get it. We put it in a way for you to be able to embrace it. And, um, you know, everyone uh, walks away feeling a bit more, uh, a bit closer to the culture than maybe they did when they walked in. So that's 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 why we picked the name. That's what it really means. It is some significance behind it. It's not just a kitchen tool. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, we thank you so much for joining us on I'll Have You Know. No, I really appreciate the opportunity and, um, you know, definitely uh, love hearing the stories on, on this podcast. And uh, I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to share ours. Well, thank you. We look forward to seeing the future successes of Chopping Block. Thank you so much. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, David Drugliever, and Christine Dobbin.